And if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27. You'll find it on page 988. So this is a good morning to play church bingo. There's definitely a spot on that card that says, Mark one place, turn to another. That's uh, a good church bingo thing. All right. So Psalm 22 marked, Matthew chapter 27, open, ready to roll, and uh, you'll be in business. Last fall, when it seemed apparent that God might be moving my family from Kansas to Hingham, my wife and I decided we probably should start getting our house ready to sell just in case. And so I I knew we had a lot of work to do, and one of the jobs I was very aware of was um, I needed to replace a board outside of our garage door. Uh, A trim piece around our garage looked like it had taken on water damage and started to rot a little bit, and I knew that would have to be replaced. So I went out one day with my hammer and my pry bar, and I started to hack away at this board, and it did something odd. Instead of coming off in splinters, it came off almost in a powder. I thought, that's weird. Wood shouldn't do that. And uh, I hacked at it more and more and more, and it seemed more and more weird until finally... I thought I found the culprit. I got up real close, and I looked really close to the wood, and I saw a tiny little worm-like creature. It was white, but it had a dark head and big pinchers on the front of it. We had termites. Didn't have a clue until this moment that we had termites in our house. And uh, another trained eye perhaps could have looked at that one board from far away and seen the damage and the type of damage and said you got a bug problem. But not me. This is my first time to ever be confronted with this issue. Uh, I had to get up super close to look at the bug. I even pulled out my phone and took video of it as it crawled up the wood just so I could show the bug guy. You know, the same way you make the noise your car makes to the mechanic. I had to show the bug guy, this is the bug. I think it's a termite. And uh, sure enough, that's, that's what it was. Well, uh, this morning, uh, we're going to look closely at the crucifixion of Jesus. And when we look closely at the crucifixion of Jesus, we're going to understand the nature of a problem that you and I have. Just like at my old house, I had to look close to find the problem. You and I, when we look close at the cross of Jesus, we're going to find our problem. And our problem is called sin. That's the word the Bible uses for it. And it may be news to you this morning that you have a problem with sin. After all, in your self-evaluation, you may find yourself to be kind, you may think I'm charitable, you may say I'm a moral person, you may say I'm a person of good intention, and all those things may be true, and all those things make for lovely neighbors, but still, you would be a person with a sin problem. You may be a, a person of a different type this morning, you may be an authentic person, you may say, I'm not like all these other hypocritical phonies, I keep it real. But look, real people have a sin problem, and so do moral people, and even religious people. I mean, you came to church this morning, of all things, that says something about your makeup. Uh, What it says definitively is that you and I have this significant sin problem. When we talk about sin, what we're talking about are all the ways in which you and I are not like God, the thoughts and the actions that we do that are contrary to His holiness. Sin is the bad things we leave undone. It is the, or the good things we leave undone. It's the bad things that we do. 
And our sin is not measured in comparison to each other. Our sin is measured in comparison to a God who is not just holy, and He's not just holy, holy. Do you know how holy He is? He's holy, holy, holy. That's how holy this God is. And in that comparison, you and I fall so short. Our sin is a serious matter. It's a matter for every person in here, one for which we're guilty. Now, when I found out we had termites, do you know who became our best friend? The bug guy became our best friend. And uh, we uh, talked to him on a regular basis. He came to the house. He fixed our problem, we think, we hope. Um, And this morning, it's my hope that when we look at the cross, we understand the depth of our sin, that it will grow in us our affections for Jesus Christ. So my goal today in the study of our passage is for you to see the cross clearly and see your sin clearly and to love Christ supremely. If we study this right, we walk out of here this morning not feeling beat down, not feeling like small little people, but with hearts full of love and joy towards our Savior, Jesus Christ. So our passage today gives us three realities regarding our sin. We look to the cross, it shines a light on three areas of our sin. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27. These are familiar words in a familiar passage, and I need you to engage head and heart as we read. Verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. I want you to go back to verse 27, and I want us to read this whole thing again. Then the governor's 
soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. And they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. We must be careful to not read too quickly the account of Christ's crucifixion because we have places to go or because the story is familiar. We need to see this clearly. And when we look intently at Jesus on the cross, we learn three things about the nature of our sin. I want to share those with you this morning. If you're taking notes, um, the first reality the cross shines on our sin is this. The cross shows us the price of sin. The cross shows us the price of sin, verses 27 through 31 spell this out for us. It is a macabre scene. In verse 26, which we did not read, we studied it last week, we're told simply that Jesus was flogged. After his Roman trial before the governor Pontius Pilate, Pilate sends Jesus to be whipped. You know how grotesque that is and how brutal a punishment that is. And after being whipped, Jesus is then taken from that scene to another place where the Roman soldiers play this sick game of dress up with Jesus. So here he is bleeding significantly and they put a mock robe on him. And they give him a king's crown made out of some thorny branches or vines. They cram it on his scalp. Then they give him a stick to pretend like it's a king's scepter. And then they begin to bow down in front of him and mock him with their words. Hail, king of the Jews. Such a sick sight, a pathetic sight. This pummeled Galilean standing there dressed in these play clothes and mocked by these soldiers. Now, there's a specific title that the soldiers use to mock Jesus. They call him the King of the Jews. 
And you and I, as students of this passage these last several weeks, that, that phrase, King of the Jews, ought to have some familiarity to it. It ought to be something that you and I are used to seeing. It's shown up before in our story. Last week in our study, Pilate uses that term in a question to Jesus. He asks him in verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? Here again, the soldiers use that title, king of the Jews, as they mock him and beat him more. And then that title is used a couple of more times. After this scene, it's used by passersby who hurl insults at Jesus. Uh, It's used by uh, the soldiers on the sign that's placed over Jesus' head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And then the passersby, as they go by, they use a similar phrase, not exact word for word, King of the Jews. They, They call him the King of Israel, same meaning. Every place this term is used in Matthew's gospel, it's used as an object of derision except for one time. Do you know where that one place is in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is called king of the Jews and it means something right? It's not on the day of his death, but rather it's not long after the day of his birth. In Matthew chapter 2, he tells us that wise men from the east came and they said, We've come to worship the king of the Jews. We saw his star and we rejoiced. And they find the baby and they find his mother and they come in and they give him gifts and they bow and worship the king of the Jews. The wise men from the east, these magi, they get it right long before Pilate gets it wrong, long before the soldiers get it wrong, long before the passersby get it wrong. The ironic thing in this whole scene is that every time they call Jesus king of the Jews in a mocking manner, they are actually declaring truth. Now, they can't imagine that. They can't understand that this sickly peasant is an actual king, but he's unlike any king they've ever imagined. He's not a king like the type they think of. He's a different kind of king. In fact, he's the king of kings. What makes the cross so incredible is that the one who is beaten, the one who is mocked, the one who is killed is not merely a good teacher. He is not merely a prophet. He is not merely a guy with some good ideas. This is God in the flesh, the one we call God the Son, very king of kings on that cross. This is the price of your sin. Your sin to be settled, for this problem to be fixed, it requires God in the flesh to lay down his life on your behalf. And why is that? Why is it that the price is so high? Imagine it this way. You and I are stained by sin, and God, who is gracious and merciful, says this. He says, I'll I'll make a deal with you. I'll let you... Find forgiveness for your sin if you will find a substitute who will die in your place. Our sin comes with a guilty verdict. That guilty verdict is death. God who's gracious and merciful and loving, if you'll find a substitute, kid, I'll let someone else die in your place. And so Cody goes on a search to find a substitute for his sin. And and I've got to look for people better than me because I've got gross sin and lots of it. But here's the problem. Every better person I find has sin of their own. 
So maybe I raise the stakes a bit and I look for some celebrity Christian, some high-end person. I, I find Billy Graham, would you, sir, please die for my sin as my substitute? And Billy Graham is a fabulous man and has done much for the kingdom of God, but he is a man with sin of his own. So no matter where I look, no matter how far I search, what I find everywhere I look, all my possible substitutes, all of you are people marred by sin. You can't die for my sin because you need a substitute of your own. And I might be the preacher, but I can't die for your sin. I need a substitute of my own. There's only one place where we can find that perfect, sinless substitute, and that is God himself, the one that we've sinned against the one that we've rebelled against, the one who's holy, holy, holy over us sinful, sinful, sinful people. And God who is rich in mercy has known this all along. He knew what creation would cost him. And so God the Son takes on flesh and we know him as Jesus. He's born to a peasant virgin girl He's raised in relative obscurity. He's not raised in a palace. He's not afforded wealth and opulence and all the massive comforts of life. He's born into poverty. And his life is lived in humility. The almighty, all-knowing God of creation had to use doors and rode on donkeys. And he got sore muscles and smelly feet And he had to answer to his parents. He was under authority to them. The God who said, let there be everything, is this God born in Bethlehem. Why? Because that's the price of sin. If you and I are going to find forgiveness and eternal life, it is only because God the Son came and laid down his life for us. When you and I see the brutality that Jesus suffers, we may want to run and stop it. We may want to strike back at the Roman soldiers and tell them to treat Jesus with more dignity and more kindness. But there's no other way on earth that a person can be saved but through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His death is not some Uh, unfortunate mishap that later writers have rewritten to give meaning. This was the plan all of long. You and I simply do not understand how high a price our sin requires. So Jesus is not the victim in this story. Brothers and sisters, this is the hour of his glory. In this Jesus on the throne, we, we see the king assuming his throne. And he transforms death into a passage a return. It's a celebration of his heavenly position. And if this is what our salvation requires, if this is what Jesus, God the Son, does for us, how then could you and I think, I will be right with God at the end of my life if I just have more good than bad in my account? That type of New England thinking is completely contrary to the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't need a crucified Savior if you think you will weigh the balance in your favor. But I promise you this, you will stand before God with your scales in hand and failed. And without a Savior who has paid the price for your sin, friend, I'm telling you, eternity will be 
awful beyond words. But God is rich in mercy and compassionate, and he has made for you and I another way. He has paid the high price of our sin through the gift of his son so that you and I will not have to face the penalty of our sin. We will not be separated from him, but for us, our eternities can be secured with him now and forever. If you are going to be saved, it will only be by turning from your sin, turning to Christ, and trusting in Christ crucified on your behalf, the King of kings who laid down his life. The high price of sin has been paid by Jesus so we can be free. When we look at the cross, it shines a light on our sin in another way as well. The first thing we learn about our sin, it has a high price. The second thing, the cross shows us the shame of sin. If you're taking notes, the cross shows us the shame of sin. Matthew tells the story of the crucifixion in a very interesting way. Uh, Matthew's focus is on the shame of Jesus, the mocking he endures. And, And I want us to take a difficult journey real quick through our passage because almost every verse has a moment of shame that's suffered by Jesus. So follow along with me in your Bible. Let me highlight these for you. In verses 28, 29, and 30, as we've already looked at, Uh, Jesus is dressed up like a mock king. He's beaten, he's spit upon, and he's mocked by the Roman soldiers. His shame in that scene is clear. In verse 34, upon arriving at the place of his crucifixion, Jesus is offered a drink of wine, and we're told it's mixed with a spice called gall. And when Jesus went to take a drink, he spit it out. There's conjecture here as to what's happening. We don't know for sure. One argument is this. One argument is that Wine mixed with gall had a deadening effect on the senses of the person being crucified. This was an act of kindness on behalf of the soldiers to help put this person out of their conscious misery. And that's possible. And so when Jesus spit it out, what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to deaden my senses. I'm going to feel this completely. And that's possible that that's what it is. There's another side or another thought about the wine mixed with gall. It's this. That act of mercy on behalf of these Roman soldiers seems so unlikely. These guys are just brutal. There's no humanity in their actions. The gall makes the wine undrinkable. It's a sick prank on their part. Another way of mocking the one who's going to to the cross. They say, do you want some wine? They give it to Jesus. He tastes the bitterness. He spits it out because it only intensifies his thirst. It doesn't satisfy it. Verse 35, those who were crucified were crucified naked. Jesus hangs on the cross without covering to his shame. His clothes then become the rewards for gamblers. Verse 37, the sign king of the Jews is put above him. It it may identify as crime. It may just have this cold legal sense about it, but it's also a term of derision as we've seen. Verse 39, Crucifixion is done publicly. It's not done in some secret chamber. It's done along a highway, so to speak, as a signal to other passersby, this is going to happen to you if you cross the Roman authorities. And so here's Jesus crucified next to a 
a road, and as people pass by, they heap insults on Jesus. They're just strolling into the city or strolling out of the city, and they heap insults on the suffering and dying Christ. Verses 41 through 43, now the religious leaders mock him mercilessly. They say that if Jesus comes down from the cross, then that's going to prove that he is the Son of God. Then they'll believe in him. And if God's on his side, surely God will save him. It's ironic that all the priests and all these pastors by assume that if Jesus comes down from the cross, he will prove that he really is the Son of God. But you and I know different. We know he stays on that cross because he is the Son of God. And in verse 44, the last verse in our passage this morning, as if all this was not enough, verse 44 tells us that even the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So our passage this morning is covered, start to finish with the shame of Jesus. Now when Hollywood tells this story, it focuses on the physical brutality of Jesus, the things he suffered physically in his body. It does not focus so much on the shame he endured. Now to be fair, Jesus suffered greatly, but that suffering is intense beyond just the physical aspects of it. Matthew barely gives attention to the physical suffering of Jesus. We're told in short order, he was flogged. He was beaten. The crucifixion itself almost goes by without a mention. Verse 35, all Matthew says is when he was crucified. He doesn't describe the spikes going into his wrists, going into his feet, the the jolt to his body as the cross is thrown in place in the hole that would hold it up. Matthew doesn't go into all of that detail. Neither does Mark or Luke or John. But all four gospel writers have this in common. They focus on the shame that Jesus endures on our behalf on the cross. The concept of shame is largely lost in our culture. From the highest leaders to the lowest. Shame has no hearing in our culture anymore. So it's hard for us to read this and understand concepts of shame and honor and how weighty all of that is. It's easier for us to think about the physicality of it and the torture that Jesus endured. But make no mistake, our sin is a shameful thing. Jesus pummeled, Jesus beaten, Jesus naked on the cross, Jesus insulted by nearly every man and woman around him, Jesus suffers the shame of our sin. The sinless Son of God bears the shame of a liar and a thief and a cheat and an adulterer. Every rebel act against God, that shame that comes with it is heaped on Jesus. He suffers it all, but listen to this. Matthew's careful as he tells his story. Jesus suffers it, but he is not defeated by it. Shame upon shame upon shame is heaped on Jesus. And at the end of this story, shame is defeated. Christ is exalted. Glory is his. And listen, church folk, that ought to be rocket fuel for your worship. We talk about all the wrong things when we talk about worship. What we got to talk about is what Christ has done for us. And what I have learned in my immaturity towards worship is this. When I see Christ bearing my shame and being victorious over it, I'm going to worship him with 
different kinds of instruments, guitars and drums, that's great. And then when I see Christ exalted and bearing my shame, I can worship him for that act with an organ and a hymn that's 400 years old. And I've learned that when I see Christ on the cross bearing my shame, I can worship him standing in Uganda in a church made of mud bricks with nothing but a drum to keep rhythm. And Christ has taken my shame and he is exalted and worship is rich because Christ came and laid down his life and took it up again. This is what fuels this gathering. This is what makes this moment rich and special because we look at this as more than an ornament in a sanctuary. It is a reminder of the shame Jesus bore on our behalf. We're learning a lot about sin in this passage. Our sin has a high price. Uh, Our sin uh, has shame attached to it, shame that is carried by Jesus. The last thing this cross teaches us about sin. The cross shows us the end of sin. It shows us the end of sin. Verses 32 through 44 spell this out for us. One amazing aspect of Matthew's account of the crucifixion are these repeated references to Psalm chapter 22. Now, I want to be very careful here, give a little disclaimer. One thing that's very important to me in preaching is that it I don't want it to come across as if I've got secret knowledge or some supernatural insight into this thing that you couldn't get without sitting down and reading the Bible on your own. So I want to present this in a way that this is not the result of any advanced degrees and certainly no intelligence on my part. The last thing I ever have to worry about is sounding too smart. I'll promise you that. But... When we've spent more and more time in the Bible, we find these bridges between different passages. And so someone who's walked in the Word of God for many, many years is going to read Matthew's account, and they're going to be reminded of Matthew, or excuse me, be reminded of Psalm chapter 22. What Matthew does throughout his gospel is he quotes the Old Testament a lot. It wasn't old when Matthew was quoting it, it was just testament. But he quotes it a lot. He uses this formula, thus was fulfilled what was written by the prophet so-and-so. And we've seen that in our study of the passion of Christ. But Matthew doesn't do that in this passage. He doesn't give a direct quote. He just gives these allusions. He builds invisible bridges between the death of Christ on the cross and Psalm chapter 22. Let me highlight some of these allusions for you, okay? So flip to your left to Psalm chapter 22. Perhaps you already have it bookmarked. And in Psalm chapter 22, I want you to look first at verse 18. We're going to move pretty quickly through these. I just want you to have it in front of your face, though. Psalm 22, 18, look at what it says. The speaker of Psalm 22 says, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Does that sound familiar? Absolutely it does. We just read that in verse 35 of Matthew 27. A second allusion. Look at verse 7. Of Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Well, verse 39, we read just a little bit ago. The passers-by, they see Jesus, they shake their head, they hurl insults at him. Look at verse 8 of Psalm 22. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? It ought to. We read it in verse 43. 
chief priests, all the religious leaders. These are the things that they say about Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Now, next week, we're going to read verse 46. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 22 in Psalm, look at what 22.1 says. It begins with this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. We're going to read that and spend time with it next week. Here are these repeated allusions from Matthew to Psalm chapter 22. So if I were to ask you as a good Bible student, what is Psalm 22 all about? You would say it's about suffering, and you would get partial credit for that answer, just partial credit. It is about suffering. Uh, It does describe the intense suffering of an individual. That individual is King David of David and Goliath fame. Uh, It describes his suffering specifically. But when the early church read Psalm 22, they saw King uh, King David giving words to the suffering of his descendant, the one greater than David, the Messiah. So I would ask you again, what's Psalm 22 about? You might say, ah, it's about the suffering of the Messiah. And still you only get partial credit, a little more, but still partial altogether. Because Psalm 22 is not just about the suffering of the Messiah. When you read and study the entire Psalm, you find it goes back and forth between statements of suffering and statements of trust. Suffering and trust suffering and trust. So, I still on Psalm 22. Look at verse 18. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. There's the suffering. Look at verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. There's the trust. Verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. There's the suffering. Verses 9 and 10. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. There's the trust. Are you with me so far? You are. Good. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at verse 3. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. Suffering and trust. When Matthew alludes to Psalm 22, he's not referencing a psalm of lament or a psalm of suffering. He's giving us a psalm of victory. What's even more amazing is at the end of Psalm 22, keep your eyes there, the one who has suffered so much turns to us readers and speaks to us. Look at what he says starting in verse 23. You who fear the Lord, South Shore Baptist Church, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly before those who fear you. I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. 
So we're reading through Matthew's account, and Jesus is pinned on that cross, and they gamble for his clothes, and you and I think back to Psalm 22, and we say, here's Christ in shame, bearing sin, but he trusts in the one who has put him there. And we read about the pastors by heaping insults on him, mocking him, and though that strikes our hearts, we remember the trust that follows that statement, that God will not despise him or put him down. We hear him cry out, why have you forsaken me? Next week in our study, we'll remember he's not forsaken. The God of Israel has always been his God, has not let him down. Throughout the story of Christ's crucifixion are these repeated reminders to you and I, this is not the end. Sin does not have the final say. It has a shelf life. Christ is victorious in this scene. This is the moment of his glory. God did not despise him, did not detest him. And listen, if God the Son could endure such suffering and shame and in the end still know God the Father's smile, can't we expect the same in our distress? Some of you need to Write Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four, in permanent marker on your bathroom mirror. He has not despised the suffering of the afflicted one, but has listened to his or her cry for help. And the cross is our assurance that death does not have the final say. Sin has a shelf life. It is defeated by Christ, who is faithful all the way to endure the shame and the pain of the cross. So the cross of Jesus highlights for us the high price of our sin, the shame of our sin, and ultimately the end of our sin. That's how we can read that passage twice, so heavy, so graphic and shameful, and yet still be strengthened and bolstered by the God who loves us and knows us by name. I have to believe that when we see Jesus paying that price, enduring our shame, defeating sin, it leads us to a greater love, a purer faith, and a louder praise of the afflicted one who bore our sin. Uh, Last year, I read a story about a retired Green Beret, a veteran named Joe Cerna, who's living in North Carolina. And uh, as so many of our vets, Joe came home with serious PTSD. And that put him on the wrong side of the law, primarily because of the things that happen when you drink too much. Uh, North Carolina has a unique program. They have a court system just for veterans, for veterans who struggle with PTSD and, and all the aftermath of the war that never ends for them. There's this intentional thought towards helping them, one, I mean, they, they, they have to they break the law, they've got to pay a penalty, but they want to be restorative in the way they apply those penalties. So Joe has been a part of this court for some time. He's on probation. He has to come for regular checkups, and on this one particular day, he missed his appointed checkup. And there's an automatic one-night-in-jail sentence. There's accountability along with this restoration. So Joe stood in the court before the judge. The judge's name is Lou Oliveira, and uh, Judge Oliveira himself is a veteran, 
And he's seen Joe a lot. And uh, he said just through it all, you could see Joe, visit after visit, relaxing a bit more, coming more into himself, growing in his health. But he knew he was at a fragile place and that this one night in jail, though not a huge deal in the end, could have some devastating consequences in Joe's continued healing. But the judge's hands are tied. He cannot do anything other than issue uh, the ruling and the penalty. And so he gives the penalty and he tells Joe something weird. He said, tomorrow, I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to pick you up. Judges don't do that. Well, sure enough, the next day, Judge Oliveira showed up at Joe's house. He had some donuts in the car. He drove him to the jail got him checked in, and they put Joe in the cell, and and Joe was just preparing himself for a long night with nothing but his thoughts and none of his known medications. And after a little while, the cell door opened up, and in came Judge Oliveira with a mattress rolled up under his arm and an overnight bag. And they closed the door behind him, and Joe said, what are you doing here, Judge? And he said, I'm in the foxhole with you. So that night, the judge stayed in the cell with Joe, and they talked about their service, and they talked about their families, and they talked about their struggles. And the next morning, after not much sleep but a whole lot of talk, they opened up the doors, they walked out, they went and got more donuts, and then the judge took Joe back home. This wonderful kindness by Judge Oliveira is a very small picture of what Jesus has done for you. The holy judge of mankind paid the high price of your sin by laying down his life. He bore the shame of your guilty sentence and he put an end to the terror of your sin once and for all. No one has ever loved you the way Jesus has loved you. And so it's time for us to trust the one who paid the price, bore our shame, and ended the reign of sin once and for all through his death on the cross. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word to us today. Holy Spirit, help us in our application. Faith in so many ways. Faith for our salvation. Faith for our sanctification. Faith for our endurance. Convince us of the shame of our sin, the horror of it, and the beauty of the afflicted one who laid down his life for us. Holy Father, guide us in our response to your word as we sing these words. Let them come from a place of truth and sincerity. And as we think about our next steps after this time together, let those steps be towards you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.